0: It doesn't seem like there's a plot, just this continuing questions of, is she going to make it? The film feels like a documentary, like I'm looking at things that people would prefer to keep private. In some ways, our Hollywood sensibility has softened our defenses. We cut away from the uncomfortable scene at a point so you don't look at something too long. And while Cassavetes isn't rubbing your nose in the film, he is holding your head so you have to stare at something you're not used to. Those are words from actor-director John Cameron Mitchell on John Cassavetes' 1974 film, A Woman Under the Influence. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. Today's film in question is a woman under the influence, so quick synopsis of the film is, although wife and mother Mabel is loved by her husband Nick, her mental illness places a strain on the marriage. The film stars Jenna Rollins as Mabel Longetti, Peter Falk as Nick Longetti, Catherine Cassavetes as Margaret Longhetti, Lady Rollins as Martha Mortensen, and Fred Draper as George Mortensen. It's written by John Cassavetes, uncredited cinematography by Mitch Bright and Al Rubin, Directed by John Cassavetes, edited by David Armstrong, Sheila Visteltier, and Beth Bergeron, and music by Bo Harwood. So today my guest is Rolo Tony, and I know him from Twitter, essentially. And we kind of started following each other just have, having mutual interest in the same type of films. I feel like the first time we might have talked was during one of the film club picks that was Videodrome. And then you started doing a few uh, spaces on your own. I remember one of them being Mommy Dearest and just like the top of it, John Joan Crawford, who is the love of my life. And I just was like, okay, this is a guy who knows the stuff. We are into the same type of movies. We happen to be living in the same city. So Toronto's got a lot of film fans. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I was so glad you said yes. And I'm very excited to have you on.
1: I'm so happy you had me on. Um, I really enjoyed our conversations in those uh, circles or not circles. I guess spaces in the past. Mm -hmm. Remember the, my first impression of you was I saw you like gushing about the swimmer. um, And that's one of my personal all time favorite films as well. That, That was one of those things where I was like, no one really knows about this movie. You know about this movie. I think we're gonna be friends. I think we got this. Yeah. When it came to talking about this film today, of course. I of course I had to say yes. You know, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I think that we're gonna have a great discussion about it.
0: I'm excited to get into it, but before that, what I'd like to do is ask you kind of what your relationship is to cinema. Like when did you sort of start to get into watching films on a more serious level? And then how did you get into Casabetti's work?
1: Well, it all kind of started for me, like my earliest, earliest memory is when I was four years old and I watched Jurassic Park for the first time. And since then, I've been obsessed with the work of Spielberg, of course, because, you know, who mm-hmm. isn't right? I, I think I think anyone like Gen X beyond is just automatically obsessed with Spielberg. But when it comes to my more serious in quotations off the deep end, I guess, uh, would be when I kind of discovered, I guess, in high school. I really started to get into more serious filmmaking, and I got into the more cliche people first. Like I got into Tarantino, I got into PTA. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I noticed, like very early on, was that like I was watching more than most people, and I was watching uh, foreign films way more than other people. Um, mm-hmm. I bring that up because one of my favorite directors growing up was Bong Joon Ho. And um, um, that really nice. got me into like South Korean cinema way before like the big booms, right? When it comes to Cassavetti specifically, the story of me and Cassavetes is the story of me and the Criterion Collection because I had known about the Criterion Collection for years, right? And for a long time... Um, I kind of saw myself as above the Criterion collection. I say that jokingly because um, I-, I love to pirate things, right? I see it oh, as yeah. morally good. I-, I know Werner Herzog agrees with me. Uh, I so do you. Uh, yeah. So does Harvey Very Green. much. So. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I-, I-, I say all of that is because I had a, you know, this perception that Criterion really wasn't worth it for me. But then I started mm-hmm. to change my approach to it. Because rather than viewing it as like an overexpensive home media option, I saw it as a way for me just to explore instant great movies, right? And then yeah. what I took advantage of was those half price sales, right? And mm-hmm. the first one of those I ever did was Akiru, the Akira Kurosawa film, um, my own private Idaho, uh, the Gus Van Sant film, and the mm-hmm. Cassavetti's five film box set. And yep. the... First film I watched on that box set was A Woman Under the Influence. And I think I watched that film two or three more times before I watched any of the other films on that box set. Yeah. I guess the thing that drew me to Cassavetes was I studied a lot of drama in high school and I took it mainly as a way to get out of um, you know actually hard courses. But what I found Mm -hmm. was I really loved the theater and uh, I specifically got really into Death of a Salesman and Beckett. And uh, as soon as um, I heard that there was this uh, filmmaker who had this playwright approach to filmmaking, I knew I had to get into him.
0: There's so many things that you said that I, I identify with. I think it's weird because I think right now where we're at in film society, people kind of look down on people like Tarantino or PTA, maybe less so PTA, but they give them a hard time. But we need those people for our generation because... From those people is where you branch off to the people that influence them. Like, you need someone as a gateway, right? You're not going to be coming out of, you know, as a 10-year-old watching Fellini. (laughs) You need someone who gets you onto that. So this is a film with so much history. I don't know. It's one of those films that I've watched several times. Every time it blows me away in so many different ways. And there's so much about it. in in the making of it and reading about it that i i just find wild so i wanted to get into a couple facts and so one of the first ones that both kind of blew my mind and, and upset me a little bit was that cassavetes couldn't find a distributor for the film after it was completed and he was at like one point literally carrying the reels under his arm from one theater to another hoping that people would play the movie and then finally scorsese uh, who recently, you know, became big at that point with Mean Streets. He had recently released that, was a huge fan of Cassavetes, as he would be. And he threatened to pull his film, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, from the New York Film Festival unless they accepted a woman under the influence. Wow. At this point, like, Cassavetes is a known person, right? It's not like he was a yeah. nobody. He's an actor, and he's done films.
1: He was friends with Scorsese before then, right? He, yeah, and, and they were friends. He, I remember reading a quote about um, when Scorsese was making Boxcar Bertha. He was like, uh, don't worry, Scorsese, you're making a big piece of shit. (laughs) Like from here on out, you're going to be able to do whatever you want. Right. And I I feel like um, maybe that instance was what caused Scorsese to support a woman under the influence so much years later. Right.
0: People can say whatever they want about Scorsese, <laughs> but this man goes out of his way to support cinema. That's what you want in a director. But to yes. me, it's just wild the fact that we could have lived in a world without this film having been released, which makes me sad <laughs> to think about that possibility. To me, this is my favorite Cassavetes, like hands down.
1: Oh, oh yeah. There's yeah, no question 100%. about it. 100%. I, I think that like you see in his other films going kind of forward that mm-hmm. he kind of tried to recapture the same energy again. And we could talk more about those other films, but I don't think he ever quite did. But something to talk about with specifically Scorsese in relation to Cassavetes and I guess mm-hmm. both of their spirits, right? A woman under the influence very easily could have been lost to the sands of time, right? Like mm-hmm. people at that era didn't really care about film preservation and they would just burn their film when they were done. But I, I say all of this because I think Scorsese and Cassavetes, they are cut from a similar cloth of American uh, independent filmmaking, which is mm-hmm. that they're more interested in community in the sense of building each other up, right? Like yeah. they don't really see competition as something that is uh, necessary uh, in mm-hmm. the filmmaking landscape. And if we compare it to the way things are now, right? Like yeah. the sense of community in the filmmaking world, unless you're talking about specific genres, right? Like if we're talking about horror filmmakers or we're talking about uh, mm-hmm. comedy filmmakers, right? They all stick together. But when it comes to filmmakers for the sense of yeah. art, for the sake of pushing the medium forward, it's kind of sad that Cassavetes and Scorsese are like the last of a dying breed in that sense. I think that's something that we see in all of Cassavetes films is that if it's not from the heart if it's not from the family if it's not mm-hmm. from your friends then it's not worth doing right like it's just yeah. like you don't do it unless you put everything of yourself into it and i really i really fucking admire it i think it's <laughs> i think it's a really uh strong it speaks a lot about Cassavetti's character i think that a director in order to uh be that empathetic to other people in the sphere as well as to his collaborators that speaks a lot to uh somebody who actually cares about the people in their life who actually listens and i think yes. that anybody who wants to direct they need to listen to that
0: oh yeah i think anyone who wants to direct should be basically worshiping at the church of Cassavetti's. he is an actor's director it also helps that he was an actor as well, but he's someone who wants to uplift and get the best out of his actors. He's not trying to overshadow, even when he is in a film. Well, Cassavetes initially wrote this as a play because his wife, Jenna Rollins, wanted him to write a role for her that would kind of push the boundaries. When she read the script, she realized, okay, I love this, but it's going to be too much to play night after night in a play. So it's it into a film. Because I cannot do this night after night on the stage.
1: I think if we wanted to peer into that world, right, uh, we just watch opening night, right? Because I feel yep. like that's what would have happened if Gina Rollins would have tried to do a woman under the influence every night. I don't think yes. uh, that she could have done it. I don't think that anyone could have done it, right? Because this this is such a tough role. This is such a tough role to – you have to have ambiguity and you have mm. to have things that you can't deny, right? and the when i say that there are things you can't deny the one of the things is you, you can't deny the fact that there is something up with mabel right yes. and when it comes to performing that every night there is a real place of helplessness that rollins mm-hmm. has to get to as a performer right many people may think that it might be like the the tics or you know like the big, mm-hmm. like exaggerated movements that would take it out of her but honestly i think it's the headspace when i think about mabel In a woman out of the influence, I see her as like a bird in like a cage, right? I Mm -hmm. I don't see her. I I see her as like an animal in an exhibit. I don't see her as like somebody who's interacting and naturally in the world. And to be like not just that character, but then also literally on a stage with a live audience, that disconnect would be so weird. I guess as a performer, right? I don't
0: know. No, I I definitely agree. It's and we'll get into it as well, but. I don't know what kind of person you would have to be not to just feel for this woman and see the way as Nick says, in one of the point her mind gets ahead of her and takes control of her. Essentially. doesn't matter how many times you watch this movie. It's has the same effect. And it's weird because this movie's two and a half hours long. It both feels like it, no time has passed, but then you feel so drained at the end. Like it doesn't feel like two and a half hours and that's, That to me is the highest compliment you could pay a film where I'm like, I did not feel two and a half hours because two and a half. You can have a 70 minute long film that feels like it's like four hours long. It does not feel it's like you start and then you're done and you realize, oh, I am exhausted. but in a good way, exhausted
1: to go off of your note there of smaller films, sometimes feeling longer. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually rewatched Tetsuo, the iron man recently. And uh, that, that movie, like the last act I I'm over that movie by that point. Right. Like by that point it, is placed all of its cards on the table. You already know what all the tricks are. You already know what it's kind of saying. So then the uh-huh. rest of the movie is just kind of watching things for the sake of the fun of it, right? And and that's enjoyable, right? But also at the same time, I want a bit more. With A Woman Under the Influence, right? It always speeds by, but I always feel the runtime right when we cut to Nick six months later, when they're waiting for Mabel to come back from the yeah. institution. And it's totally on purpose on Cassavetti's end. We really feel like the lack of Mabel's presence. And every time I get to yep. that part in the film, I'm always like checking my clock. Like when's when's Gina coming back? I, I, want, I want Gina back on screen. And that's not to say I don't like Peter Falk. In fact, I think that that actually is a, a credit to Peter Falk. The fact that we feel mm-hmm. that in those moments.
0: And like you said, it is a credit to Falk's performance because he is also waiting And you can tell that he's, like, counting down. The days, you know, the hours, the minutes. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be talking about the performances because this is... Oh, yeah. This is that. That's the movie. A couple little quick facts, so I'll just rapid fire. Well, one, they didn't have any rehearsals for it other than the initial table read. And a lot of the time, it would seem like they were rehearsing, but hat was filming. So Sometimes what we might have seen was to the actors, like, kind of a rehearsal, but he was like, Why not use it? This is a great take. So let's just use it. This is the only time Cassavetes was nominated for (laughs) Best Director. The last fact that's not even really about the making of this film, but Richard Dreyfuss claimed that he found the film so harrowing when he first saw it, it caused him to vomit. That's how I'm going to end my fun fact.
1: That last fun fact is interesting because doesn't Richard Dreyfus suffer from bipolar disorder? Does he? I'm pretty sure he does. Like I'm like 90% certain he does. It's either him oh. or Scheider. I, I know that it's like one of the main cast of mm-hmm. Jaws suffers from bipolar disorder and they're very open about it. So my guess would be that the reason that, you know, he even had a quote on the film was that he has those uh, struggles themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love that you brought up the way that they shot the film with the lighting, because I was listening to a Q and a uh, conversation about that. And apparently uh it was it was wonderful for the actors, like they, you know, mm-hmm. were able to stop and start whenever they wanted to. But apparently the oldest girl, child, was mm-hmm. the only person on set who would always know when they were recording. So so oh, yeah. Casavetti's, he said that they had like dozens of takes that were incredible, but they were ruined because the little girl was looking directly into the camera, <laughs> smiling. <laughs> which oh my
0: God, that's funny. Oh that I actually great. looked her up last night because I was like, what else has she been in? Because she's plays a prominent enough role out of the three kids because they have three kids i always you always hear them maria maria uh this is the only time she was ever in anything really she must have been like a friend of the like someone's friend like kid you know that they were just like uh
1: the oldest son is seymour cassell's uh son and seymour cassell mm-hmm. is of course
0: uh, honestly i think seymour one of the first things i kind of wanted to talk about is it's hard not to talk about a director's work and that's what i kind of like doing on the show is the reason why i highlight different directors is we're talking about the film in question but we want to talk about their body of work and their style and Cassavetti's often highlights flawed women People can take it one way or the other as as someone who is a woman, identifies as a a woman. I appreciate the way he makes women very honest as opposed to putting them on some sort of pedestal that we can never achieve or making them nasty villains. They're never villains. They're never nasty. They're just real people. And it's not often that women get to be real people on films. There has to be a reason why they're this way as opposed to this is just the way they are. We see that a lot. We see that in this film. This one ties in mental health issues as well. Going to read a quote from Casavetes himself about Mabel and the concept of, is she mentally ill, is she not? So he says, I believe very strongly that all women who are married for any length of time, and if they love their husbands, they don't have any place to put their emotions, and that can drive them crazy. This particular woman, I don't think she's crazy. I think she's just frustrated beyond belief more than being crazy. I think she's just socially inept. So that's a loaded quote. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I think the beauty of art is that the artist can have an intent, but it's up to the audience to, you know, interpret things as they want. I definitely think Mabel has a mental illness. I think she's also socially inept. She can be both things. As much as he thinks that he wrote a woman who wasn't mentally ill, I think he definitely did. He just it got away from him, I guess. How do you feel about what his vision is of Maple and your interpretation of Maple?
1: Well, we're, we're talking about a unique director in this case because the lead actress is his wife right and Mm -hmm. because of that they're going to have deeper conversations about the role and if you ever listen or read about uh their relationship you'll come to find quickly that they were very close they were inseparable and they would speak greek to one another because that was a good way of having their own language to keep things separate but when it comes to mabel as a character i get that cassavetes sees her in that way but what's interesting is that he also sees her as partially complicit in her own issues, in her own downfall, right? Yeah. But I think that what makes a woman under the influence sing is Mabel. It's Gina Rollins. I think mm-hmm. that- Rather than um, the artist having their own work get away from them, I think that Gina actually secretly makes the film better because she sees something in the material that Cassavetes himself doesn't recognize. Cassavetes, when he wrote this film, uh, he talks about how he became Mabel for a bit when he was writing it. To touch on what you were saying before about women characters, I think that he, he uses women as a conduit to get to the heart of harder to discuss or harder to appreciate societal issues. Mm -hmm. And this kind of relates to the style of acting that Cassavetes uh, used to teach with Burt Lane. I read about this where Burt Lane and him, they essentially hated the method and they (laughs) developed an acting style that involved characters having to wear masks. Or essentially a character who tells lies in order to pretend to be someone else, right? Okay. Now, when we relate that to the idea of women living in society, the idea of I have to act a certain way when I'm in this specific situation or else there will be something or or else there'll be hell to pay, right? That's essentially Mm -hmm. the whole whole conflict of a woman under the influence. It's Mabel, she has something up with her. But at the same time, you can see the way that she could function in the world. The thing that causes her to crack is the lack of attention from her husband, the lack of love and warmth from the rest of her family, and the lack of true being seen. She needs to be seen. She needs to be heard. She needs space to sing, to dance, right? But oftentimes she's left alone. She's left Mm -hmm. in a house Anytime she tries to make decisions for herself, somebody bigger or supposedly so comes in and tells her not to do that and to do something different. To bring this all down to the women element, because I think that's a very important point you bring up there. Women in society at that time were not afforded the same allowances that men were. And mm-hmm. what I would posit in this conversation is less so is Mabel crazy, right? But rather, is Nick crazy? Yes, exactly. I believe so as well. Yes, Mm -hmm. that's definitely something I was going to talk about as well. And Um, the reason I bring that up, right, is because a lot of this film kind of unlocks itself when you spend more of your time looking at how Mabel and Nick's parents interact with them rather than directly between the two of them. Because the Mm -hmm. main thing I saw with Nick's mom, uh, played by John Cassavetes' mom, actually, which is funny, Mm -hmm she did the duties of a wife in quotations, Mm -hmm. but then she also was very judgmental and she was very focused on the way that things were supposed to be. And that's Nick's whole deal. But the ultimate oxymoron with Nick is that he himself is not normal. It's exactly
0: that. And I noticed it specifically on this watch and then also reading is that Nick is so focused on having a happy family and appearing happy. And he's, but that it makes him angry and he's just yelling at people, be happy, be normal, have a fun time. But it's like, you're yelling at me. So I'm not going to have a fun time if you just yelled at me to get on the beach, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, and it's like, it's like at the old school way of parenting. Like I see it in my parents and that I see it in, Uh, My grandparents, other people's parents have just been, this is the way it's supposed to be and they can't get out of that mindset. And sometimes it's like, it's not even worth fighting them.
1: Now, something I wanted to ask you about the Nick paradigm that we both agree on, I guess, is that, do you think that what's driving him crazy is the fact that Mabel doesn't do these things or is he driven crazy by society putting those uh, perceptions onto them?
0: I would say it's the latter because one of the first scenes with him when he's talking to his coworker being like, I got to get home. And the coworker, his friend, I guess, is like, Oh, Mabel's going to be going crazy, essentially. And he's like, no, this woman, you know, she cooks, she cleans, she scrubs the floor, she cleans the bathrooms. And he's essentially telling him this woman does so much for me. She just has, she's essentially in his mind, sensitive. That's how they keep referring to her as is overly sensitive. So I don't think that he doesn't think that she does all these things because she does. And we see her do, we see her get on the floor, scrubbing the floors, And he goes and kisses her at some point because he's like, he appreciates what she does. I think his it's like kind of like an embarrassment that people are embarrassed of being around her. It's not like they don't like her. They kind of, they feel bad for her. And you can sense that discomfort. And he doesn't like that because for him, it it looks bad on him, I guess, in his mind.
1: I I don't know if I'm a crazy person for holding this belief, but I'm going to throw it out there. Right. Mm. I don't think that Nick's coworkers really care that Mabel's got problems. I don't think that Mm. they actually pass much judgment on Mabel. Right. And I think that most of the awkwardness that comes in that first breakfast spaghetti dinner, which I love that they always eat spaghetti. That's like my favorite detail in the whole film. Um, But, but, but with uh, Nick's coworkers, right. Like, Nick always is trying to sell them that Mabel's specific ways, but then when they come over, she doesn't clean, she doesn't cook, she doesn't do anything. She just gets overwhelmed and forgets all of them. She doesn't remember their names. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thing that sets the tension off for me in that scene and throughout the rest of the film, of course, is Nick getting mad that things are wrong and nobody else is really making too much of a big deal about it. Right. Like, There's that moment where Mabel gets really close to the guy's face as he's singing, right? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't even really seem to care. Like He he lets her do it, right? It's Nick who starts to yell that really escalates the situation, right? Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. I agree with you that I think it's the societal pressures. This is one of those movies where they don't really need to show you much of the literal background of a relationship to actually yep. know what the relationship was before. When I watched this movie, I see like a younger Nick and Mabel where like Nick is aware of these issues and he like lets it slide so he could be with her. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we're watching over the the course of this film, I think this is the start of an abusive relationship.
0: And it is, and there's that scene after he first hits her. And if we'll track back, the scene that leads up to that is Her kids, and I assume, I think it's like a neighbor's kids, are going to have a play date. The dad stays on because I think right off the bat, he's like, something is a little bit off about Mabel that he's not used to. So he stays around because he initially was just going to drop them off, come pick them up. She tells the kids to go dress up. They're in her closets. Nick gets home and he sees his daughter running around naked. The grandmother, Nick's mom asks why are you naked who took off your clothes she says mom did we don't actually see that scene we don't know kids why mabel could have also told her to take off the clothes that she was wearing to dress into something else that's beside the point nick gets upstairs and he sees the neighbor up there he's confused i think he kind of knows what's happening but he's so amped up at that point that he doesn't care he's angry and he slaps mabel later on mabel discusses she's like she says to him she's like you've never done this before i know why you did it he never done this. You and I understand each other. She's trying to excuse his behavior for it. And It's sad, and I I do believe that he probably hasn't done it before, but he has been aggressive towards her. Just because you haven't been physically aggressive doesn't mean he hasn't been aggressive. You could tell he hasn't. He at the core of him, there's anger boiling up in him, and it was going to come out in some sort of way, one way or the other. It just was there, and I do agree it is an abusive relationship because he doesn't know how to deal with it he wants to make her better by just saying be happy and that's not going to work
1: yeah and what's interesting is that he is so much more interested in like upholding the standard patriarchal ideals right the uh-huh. party in question, the only reason that the party happened was because Mabel was trying to get the kids ready for school, and Nick decided to use that as a time to do a power play where he gets the kids to whistle, right? And that's what triggers Mabel to be like, when we get home, we're going to have a party, right? And, yeah. and that right there shows you everything, right? Because it shows you that Nick doesn't really care about the practicalities of life. He just wants mm-hmm. to, I guess, like oppress his wife. He wants to like make her commands seem like nothing uh in mm-hmm. the eyes of her children and uh mabel already recognized that issue and then the idea of him coming home to slap her right what was interesting was that mabel calls nick to let her know that she started to throw the party and mm-hmm. he hangs up on her he hangs up on her and rushes over with the mom to slap her yeah. right he heard her talk about the party he heard her discuss the chance of doing that but what made him drive home was her actually doing it he didn't actually think that she was going to do the party that's crazy yeah that's you know he doesn't expect the most from her he doesn't expect her to try to succeed and when she actually does he gets super mad and hits her and it's disgusting mm-hmm. but one thing that's interesting though is we talk about the abuse we talk about all those things right but i don't think that anyone who watches this film would deny the fact that peter fock and gina rollins have this like amazing chemistry and oh, you yeah. can actually see why those characters fell in love in the first place.
0: Oh, 100%. Even if we bring it back to the scene of where the, the spaghetti breakfast scene, there's two ways you can read it. And I think probably the first time I watched it, he's looking at her and he's, he's watching her and she's not always looking at him. But when their eyes meet, it looks like true love. And I do believe that he does love this woman. He just is trying to control her. You can love someone, you can try and control them as well. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean just because you love someone, you're a good person or a necessarily a bad person. Each time you watch it, I think the anger, because you know what's going to happen if you've seen it before, you can see the anger, but you can also see the worry in him because he wants the best for her but because he wants the best for himself, essentially. He wants to appear like a normal guy who has a stay-at-home wife, three kids. You know, she's going to cook us all a meal. But Even just the concept of him showing up to the house after he had to break their date, for whatever, because he had to work. That's valid. But he shows up in the morning with a crew of men knowing that they're going to want to eat. And so she has to cook for these people like that to me is the most wild thing. I was like, sir, I have not even woken up, let alone (laughs) I'm going to now have to make spaghetti for everyone. And we can track back. I will track back eventually to what had happened with Mabel prior to that. But if we just stay on this, he expects her to be a certain way, probably because that's how his mom was that's how her mom was so in his mind he's like this is how women should be this is the wife that i you know i'm providing for you this is what you're supposed to provide for me which is sense of normalcy essentially Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to have the extra work and it's a lot It, it would be a lot for anyone to deal with a mother a person in your life with mental illness and you don't know how to address it but he's going about it in a the worst way as we
1: see it's odd because he's given like the worst scenes. For her mental illness and then also given some of the best scenes, right? I I don't want to go too far into the later half of the movie, but when she comes home from the institution and he takes her away and he's saying, you know, Mm -hmm. be yourself kind of thing that that shows that deep down he does love her core, right? Yes. And Mm -hmm. that's beautiful that that should be shown right then on the flip side, the opening of the film where all those guys are coming in, right? There's such a lack of respect for boundaries there you know, maybe like 40, 50 years ago, guys would expect that. Right. But to mm-hmm. like think in my head of like the concept of let's say bringing like 40 guys over while my girlfriend's like just like, as bananas. I,
0: I did want to talk about the title of the film, A Woman Under the Influence. I think if you're going into this film, you assume this is about alcoholism. At least that's what I thought. And there is, there is a bit of that in this film. What you notice though, is that it's really not about that. It's, it's not about that type of influence. It's, you know, the influence of nick it's the influence of other people who are trying to influence her into being someone she's not and it's weird because if you google this movie and you know how you see stills right off the bat it's always of her and that scene where she's waiting for nick and all the beer cans around that makes mm-hmm. it seem like it's about a woman who's an alcoholic and she has that scene where she drinks a lot and i'm sure she probably does they allude to her drinking a lot but it's not about that mm-hmm. how do you feel about that title the way people view this film and the way the fact that her drinking a lot is really not the root of the issue of you know this film
1: at all. 100%. And I, with this podcast, it's always important to uh, put it in the context of the filmmaker, right? And I think mm-hmm. that it really bears highlighting that the death of Cassavetes was caused by alcoholism. Uh, his liver yep. failed. And um, mm-hmm. when you tie that into the struggles of this film, it makes it way harder to watch. But uh, regarding... Uh, Mabel specifically, right? I, the the alcohol is not so like she's an alcoholic, but she's not an alcoholic in the sense that she enjoys the drinking. She does it because mm-hmm. she's bored. She does it because yes. no one's around. And and her drinking seagrams at the bar to impress the guy is not so much because she actually likes drinking C- seagrams. It's because she wants to impress the guy. And yeah. the title "Woman Under the Influence" it kind of sounds lame to say, but I don't think it's about. Alcohol. I think it's more Mm -hmm. so about societal pressures. I think that this is a film where uh, it's talking about how, like, the creaking and the bending of, like, the pillars that hold up the weight in your mind, Mm -hmm. how they start to crumble. And it's an interesting film to kind of view that through the prism of, because I think that Cassavetes is kind of asking the question of whether or not any of uh, our traditional society from the seventies, I guess, is actually natural, right? Like, he's talking about like how capitalist, patriarchal, all those things, they're in place for decades. And we're watching like generations after the fact, this is what's happened. This is a woman who is under the influence of the society that it's created. And Nick on the, Inverse of that is also in, under the influence, but he's intoxicated and he loves yes. the, way, the world that it's created. And he is bought into it. He is able to buy into it, and because he is bought into it, people excuse his eccentricities. Nobody ever mm-hmm. calls him out for his problems, right? Because he just accepts it, and because he doesn't really call attention to it. Mm-hmm. Mabel is only a victim to their own issues because other people in her life, like they refuse to interact, they refuse to engage, yes. because. They see that as more messy for their own lives.
0: That's exactly that. It's there's so many scenes in this where, even if okay, if we track it back to when she is waiting for Nick and she starts drinking, she's waiting for him. As you said, it's because she's bored. It's not because she's wanting to get drunk or she's angry. I mean, she's disappointed, but I don't think she's angry. She knows where he works. It's it's not like he was lying. We see that he's at work. That's about it because could have not shown that and we would have been like is he doing something else but he clearly showed this man's at work we're all excusing the fact he's at work so we're not angry with him either she's a person with three kids her mother has them she's worried that the mother has them and she's sitting there like now i don't know what to do with myself this is also it's it's a different time it's not like she's like oh i can just put on a movie or i can go on the internet type of deal she's sitting there she has nothing to do There's alcohol there, so why not drink? And essentially kind of live a little. So she goes out, Mm -hmm. and she's talking to people, and she meets the guy who can tell right away this woman is drunk. And he takes advantage of that fact. He says, let's go back to your place. And he's forcing himself on her.
1: Wait, before we move there, right? Did you catch what the bartender says?
0: No, what
1: what did he say? The last uh, moment in that sequence, right? Uh, they get ready to leave and the gentleman pays for their drinks. You cut back to the bartender and the bartender looks to the guy who's picking up Mabel and he goes, good luck. Oh yeah. Pretty, pretty uh scuzzy. I don't know. Ooh. Yeah. So I continue.
0: <laughs> no, actually, as a side note to that, I was reading of people, you know, kind of theorizing that this has happened before. So that could be like, he knows her or it's, you know, good luck. Cause she's strong and she seems a little bit off. Mm-hmm. They get back to her place. He's forcing himself on her. She doesn't want it. And then it cuts to the morning and she's in bed and he's getting dressed. The implication is that they slept together or he successfully managed to take advantage of her either way. It's not good. And he just kind of lingering. You kind of expect him to leave. He did mention Nick in a sort of way. She says, you know, I set the kids off and he doesn't show up whether he was listening to it or not, but then he's kind of playing off. I don't know if you're trying to use me as a way to get back at someone or other vice versa. And he's just kind of lingering in the place. He's like, I don't know what's going on with this woman, but he seems to be interested in the chaos that she brings. What I love about what Cassavetes does with that scene is that he could have had Nick walk into that situation and have him blow up. Because other we kind of sent Nick's, I don't know if it's we sent Nick's, Personality right off the bat, or we just know P- Peter Falk is often cast as someone who has a bit of an aggression. We kind of anticipate him going into the scene losing his shit. We don't see that; they don't meet. He's gone by the time he shows up with his crew. How do you kind of feel about the fact that that happens is never addressed by Nick? It does come up again because his yeah, mom mentions it, and you kind of wonder, oh, how does the mom know? And obviously, there was a conversation yeah. that happened, not on screen. And I think that's just the beauty of his writing. But how do you feel about that?
1: That was probably like one of the first like hooks that got me into the movie when I first watched it, right? Because you know, you watch a movie and you see like someone's being philanderous, or you know, mm-hmm. they're they're going behind their partner's back, and you expect that to come up right away. That's yeah. a, that's the beginning of the movie kind of thing where it's like, okay, now they're going to be out on their own and they do whatever, right? But then the fact that they don't address it and then it only comes up later, secondhand from somebody else, and when Nick hears that, he doesn't even like add to it. He just laughs and sends her out of the room. I think that says mm-hmm. everything, right? And mm-hmm. now with the sequence with the guy and Mabel, right? I don't think that I I, I hate to, you know, talk this way sometimes about characters because sometimes it gives the impression that you're letting them off too easy, right? Yeah. But I don't think that it's Mabel's fault for doing these things. I think that she this is literally like a mania psychosis kind of thing. That's Mm -hmm. pushing her to this level. Right. And we, we see later with the workers that she has these like memory gaps, these, you know, problems with identifying people. And Mm -hmm. these are all things that you can trace to bipolar or BPD. And with this guy, he knows that something's wrong with her. He heard that she was married. I think the reason he gets mad at her when he's getting ready to leave is because he wants to create the closing of a door. Yeah. That guy's a scumbum. Right. Like he, yep. he's done this with a million women in the past. And my guess is that's his move. Mm-hmm. He's probably like using that as a way to where, Oh, Hey, you're, you didn't tell me you were married. I'm out of here. Right. And that's his mm-hmm. easy quickly. Right. There, there is a universe of this world, right. Where like everyone's coming over and then it goes into the kitchen and then he sees them there. What are you doing? Whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. But even, If we were to take the logic of it, I'm not even sure that Nick would do anything. I think that Nick would let him sit at the table. I think that Nick would not go for the confrontation because he's so much more somebody who would explode in the risk aversion rather than actually approach a confrontation.
0: I think if we show them getting into a fight about that, then we're putting some blame onto Mabel and it's not what it's about I don't think she's entirely to blame for that situation at all. Uh, so I'm glad that he didn't go down that route of trying to make her into someone that we don't fully trust or are not fully behind. So I appreciate that he did do that. I think where I wanted to go and we kind of talked about it before was, you know, the concept of Nick being the male provider. Mabel is a stay at home mom nick is out working he works long hours he works a very physical demanding laborious job and i think he likes that whether he likes his work or not is that's not the question he likes the fact that he's the one coming home bringing home the money and she is to stay home taking care of the kids that's what he wants he doesn't want her to have to lift a finger other than at home essentially and it makes him feel good that he's able to provide for the family because they own a house they live in L.A. They own a house. I mean, this is a different time. (laughs) Obviously, you could own a house if you worked anywhere at that point. But Mm -hmm. it's not the biggest house because the kids... Another thing I want to talk about was the house itself as being like the center. Is The kids are upstairs. The staircase plays a huge thing in this film. And they sleep downstairs in what is the living room, sort of dining room. And once they're done sleeping, it turns into their dining space. They're... Not struggling, but they're making sacrifices for their family. But it's very much that home is their center and he wants to come home to a center that is what he finds to be comfortable. And it's being disrupted by Mabel's inability to be who he wants her to be. A writer was talking about Nick and he says, Nick is a man who believes so passionately in his idea of perfect happiness. No, ma- no matter how wrongheadedly that he would rather destroy everyone around him. And see it compromised i think that's very much nick to the core he's pushing everyone away because he wants them to come together because he does not know how to process his emotions because he's not well enough to process his emotions
1: yeah he destroys it because he doesn't know how to keep things contained like within like a easy to manage box right Mm -hmm. and we see this through like this the several party scenes right but i think like the most important example of this would be when mabel's coming back from the institution right Mm -hmm. and he doesn't ask people if it's a good idea until everyone is there right yeah you know a part of it is horrible on his end because he didn't even consider the emotions that his wife would be feeling coming back after all this time. But uh-huh. I think that it's even more indicative that it's more important to him to be seen as great in the eyes of many than to actually do something that's personally fulfilling because yeah. he thinks that both are true. He thinks that like, if you do one, you get the other, but in reality, life is about like, you know, there's the thing that life wants you to do. And then there's the thing that makes you happy. Right. And you have to, uh-huh. it, it's a, it's a balance of, you know, what you can, and what you can't. and, uh-huh. The sequence when Mabel reaches out to her father and he does not stand up, that is Nick winning. And what's interesting to see in that scene is that Nick is the only person at that table that knows exactly what's happening as it's happening. You see it on Mm -hmm. his face. You see him as he's looking at all the right people as it's happening. I bring that up because he thinks he's won by the end. He thinks that this is his world and this is everything is gonna go back to like some form of normalcy. But I th- think that this is the start of the end, this film. Mm-hmm. I think this is the start of the disillusion and the crumbling of things. And it's because mm-hmm. he refuses to interact and actually engage. Like we see the way that Nick's supposed to be seen through his children. The the end of mm-hmm. the film, his kids don't even want to touch him. They don't even look at him. They watched him beat their mom, right? And now they don't yeah. want him, like anything to do with him. I think that Nick has a lot of love in his heart. I think that he does a lot of things to show that he cares. But by the end of the film, he puts all of the cards on the table. We now know what he is deep down, is that mm-hmm. he would rather sacrifice his family's happiness than, you know, you get the idea.
0: If we switch now back to kind of Mabel, she's a character that you can empathize with as we mentioned as we've been talking about, it would be very difficult. I don't know what kind of person you would have to be not to empathize with this woman. Whether you're able to identify with her is a different question because there is a, the question of mental healthness and just even her personality. You might not identify with Roland's is an incredibly physical performer. I think that's why, to me, when I think of the greatest actors and just actresses, I always think of her because. She's able to step into a role that makes you feel so much. And that to me is an incredible actor. And I think that's why she never was given any real sort of accolades because you, how do you give an award to someone? That's how I'm trying to view it in my world. In my world, you know, I mean, like you can't, there's no award worthy of her work. I was reading a quote from a writer on the film criticism blog, Spectrum Culture, and they say, Mabel is a character difficult to connect with, even embarrassing at times, yet sympathetic and understandable. Rollins extends herself tremendously with her performance, not just with indulging in outward manifestations, but being troubled via clothes or hair or putting her whole body into it. And she has the thumb gestures that are barely perceptible, you know, defensive posturing. You have Peter Falk in this movie, and you have other good performances, but this is her movie. I don't want to say that we wouldn't be talking about this movie if she hadn't been in it, but I don't know if we would, to be honest, because she is everything in this. Everything that she does, the little ticks that she does, the looks that she gives.
1: You know, it's its kind of a cliche, but they they always say, like, uh, study the first scene with a character to kind of learn what they're all about, right? And the first time that we see Mabel, it's her rushing to get her kids into the car with her mom uh, so they can go away. And she's doing all of the regular motherly duties, right? But the thing that complicates things is that she's putting on her shoes in the process, right?
0: So mm-hmm.
1: that immediately tells us that she is the kind of person to where she is doing like the normal society, like needs to be done things at the same time as she's trying to do the personal things, right? And it mm-hmm. shows that she's also uh not fully completing her tasks, right? Like she can't fully stick to one through line or one like one ideology and thus she's is scattered and also it shows us that she cares about her kids more than she cares yep. about her own well-being mm-hmm. and she says later in the film uh, her kids come home from school and she says i've done nothing with my life you guys are the only things i've ever done with my life and i would never have it any other way that's one of the be- most beautiful things a mother could ever yeah. say to their kid when it comes to roland's performance as an actress in this I always mm-hmm. look at character actors as the most talented in the whole profession. And I, I think agree. That Rollins, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It, and, yeah. and it's part of it is the lack of shame, right? They, they don't yes. care how they see. It. And it, it, it matters entirely what's on the page rather than the vanity of an actor or an actress. Right. And mm-hmm. the reason I bring that up with Gina Rollins is that that, is seen throughout her entire career. She never Mm -hmm. really seemed to have any kind of larger pretensions about how she sees herself. And also she didn't really seem to care about conventional beauty or Mm -hmm. things like that in her roles or on screen. Mm -hmm. I say all of this because when we look at Mabel in A Woman Under the Influence, I think that she took the character to a place that no one else had gone before, partially because people were afraid to go there.
0: I mean, I agree with all of that. I think one of the last points I'll say about it is that what's interesting is that not only are we portraying a woman with mental illness, but she's also a mother and she's dealing with the pressures of, well, you're a mother. You're supposed to be happy for your kids. You also have a husband who provides for you, who loves you. So why are you unhappy? Why are you this way? And it's the struggles of being a mother with mental illness, depression, and having to deal with kids. And she very much clearly loves her kids. Like the scene that you were talking about, even when she comes home and she's like, I want to see my kids. Nick is like, not yet because they're going to cry. You're going to cry. He doesn't want to make a scene. And his mother's like, why shouldn't she go see your kids? Let her go see your kids. And that scene is overwhelming when she sees her kids and they're right. saying, I love you. I miss you. I love you. And she's overwhelmed. She has to exit the room and then we get the rest of what we've talked about.
1: I thought I had this time around. And I never thought about it this way, right? But like the the way we shoot the scene, right? The way we see it, the way the Cavetti's captured it. He goes super tight with her on a long lens and we never see the faces of the kids, right? My thought in that sequence was she was gone for 6 months and all of mm-hmm. those kids are like toddlers. Like I'm not a parent myself, but I know that kids they grow a lot in those time periods, right? The uh, f- there's a big difference between a five-year-old and a six-year-old. She didn't see her kids for six months. And nobody really like Nick like tried to stop her from doing that, right? Yeah. The fact that Nick's mom even lets her do that, right? That's the kindest thing that Nick's mom ever does for Mabel in the entire movie. Too. Yes.
0: That's when he she was finally identifying her with her as a mother, because they never explained why is it that they weren't taken there for visits? Was it that they weren't allowed? Nick didn't want to bring them there or whatnot, because before she's sent off, she's talking to Dr. Zepp and she's like, OK, fine. She's kind of agreeing to being taken away, but she's like, you got to let me take my kids with me. She's like, I can't leave them. It's just so sad
1: the cut in that scene that kills me it's right at the end of that scene it's when the the doctor finally serves the notice that she's being instituted right like he's starting to like put the hammer down and we cut away mid-sentence like the wave of just like pain hits me right there right like that that's one of those moments that like like i said it always gets to that point where you you don't have mabel in the picture that like really gets to me right and that that is it right there
0: there's a lot of cuts in this film where it's like there's a scene they're in mid sentence and it cuts and you're like okay it's up to you to figure out what was said afterwards.
1: It cuts at a really interesting place too, right? Because the last thing we see in the film is they close the doors to the bedroom and we peer through the window and it's uh, Nick undressing Mabel, right? And mm-hmm. what's interesting is that we allude to these times of peace with Nick and Mabel but we never see it we never like actually yeah. see what they're like when they're alone right and mm-hmm. yet like this is like the one time we get it and and it's almost like silence and i think i said it before but it's all like a lot of this is like primal right like a lot of this mm-hmm. is like they fall into like these modes that just feel natural to their current situation with that ending right I, I inferred that this was kind of like the start of an abusive relationship and with abusive relationships, right? Whether it be the guy or the girl who's getting abused, they're always going to look to those wonderful glimmers of the past, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They're always going to be like, but it was great when it was like this. And in a really sad way, like that last scene is one of those moments. It's like one of those moments where Mabel seeing the good. She's like that. I've got time alone with my husband, and we're just doing something menial. But it doesn't matter because it's with us together. The music is really dorky, but I think that if we didn't have something so dorky like that, the movie wouldn't be like it wouldn't be such an iconic ending, right? Like it's yeah one of those perfect juxtapositions that while you're watching it, you're not quite sure how to feel, but upon reflection, it makes sense. It's like it's like a corrupted sitcom. That's the way it feels.
0: It could have been one of those endings where you don't really want to go back and rewatch this because you're feeling empty whereas this doesn't make you feel empty that way where you're like i need to go back and rewatch stuff i might have missed or i want to just kind of understand these people better when she's having her break when she gets back from the institution everyone's left now Nick's kicked everyone out and she eventually tries to injure herself And the kids are screaming. It's like it's a very heavy scene. And the kids Mm. are screaming. They they're saying it, We don't understand mom, we don't understand what's happening, what's going on. And there's no way for them to understand their children. They shouldn't even be subjected to that, unfortunately. Nick does try to get the kids upstairs, but they want to see their mom. They haven't seen her. Uh and then she goes up on the couch and starts doing the swan like because she wants to remove herself from that situation. You can see even once when he hits her and she's on the ground, the kids are screaming. She just kind of is like staring off into the distance. She's disassociating from the situation because she's seeking something that will calm her down and bring her Mm -hmm. back to, you know, to to the ground essentially. What a way to end that movie.
1: One of my favorite acting decisions in this film comes from the kids. It's when it's after Nick returns. It's when Nick's like yelling at mabel as she's still on the couch after he's hit her and the kids just keep on like trying to get nick to like lift him up right and it's like one of those moments where it's like Cas is a fucking genius because the, yeah. the kids don't even know what they're trying to do what the kids are doing they they're asking to be held right but uh-huh. subconsciously they're trying to distract their father to leave the mother alone right and yeah. like, I, like I was watching it last night, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, I need to go yeah. for a walk. This is not so depressing. That Swan Lake dancing at the end—uh, she only does it after everyone ignores her. You know, like, mm-hmm. it, like she she is having like a huge breakdown in that moment, I guess. But she asked them repeatedly to leave. No one respected her wishes. Now she's doing that. It's really sad, really, when you look at it, because even though it's definitely a dated approach to mental illness on the part of the players, not Cassavetti's And it's, a, yeah. uh, they, they have an outdated worldview in that sense, but it's sad to see how prevalent a lot of the same ideologies persist today, you yeah. know, uh, and, and even within like uh, circles that state that their goals are to support mental health struggles. Many of them don't really understand uh, that the first step comes with listening. And this film is pretty much all about that.
0: I think that's also like a theme in his other films too. Um, you see it in *Minnie Moskowitz where some character even mentions to her that she's a great listener. I think probably because Cassavetes is a great listener. He clearly is someone who listens and learns and then brings forth that into his work.
1: One of my favorite bits of comedy in this movie is when Mabel's father, he sees Mabel coming through the door and he's like, okay, I'm leaving. I'm done i'm not eating yeah. spaghetti i can't do it again <laughs> i am over spaghetti mabel's dad just doesn't care about her I, I think that that's a reflection to also of the patriarchy on how men and fathers didn't really care about their daughters uh in that time period but also just the baseline i'm sick of spaghetti and i can't have it again like this this is this movie is hilarious it is in my eyes right like i even though it's so deeply unsettling and it's got so much sadness in it, there are so many things that you just kind of have to laugh at the absurdity of it all and the mm-hmm. fact that this guy is just breaking down because he can't eat another plate of spaghetti. It's it's so like it's it's something that someone would get upset at, about, right? Yeah, like, it's so <laughs> it's so lived in.
0: I, I meant to bring up that point because that is that is like a point of
1: funniness because it's just so
0: normal in a sense to just be like i can't eat this again on a deeper point of what you said of he not caring about her there's that scene where she's kind of sitting not on his lap she's sitting on the the arm of the chair and he's in the chair she says how am i how am i doing dad and she's kissing him It's, it's kissing him for a long time where you start to get kind of uncomfortable and he says go sit near your mom you know, go sit with your mom because he's just trying to be like, I can't handle this. You need to go off to your mother who should be handling this instead of him. And he's he's immediately trying to get it to the point where I don't even, it took me a while to realize until uh they explicitly said it that he was her dad because there mm-hmm. there's no mention of him before this. You don't see him before you see her mom. Definitely a couple other scenes with Nick that <laughs> are funny because he's just so over the top. Even when he's like, Let's go to the beach. I'm going to bring the kids out of school to go to the beach. he's like yelling at them to have fun. It's like the kids are just not enjoying themselves Mm. as they wouldn't. Or he gives his kid a sip of beer. He's like, okay, that's enough. It's like this kid is like seven years old.
1: They're in the back of a truck with no actual seats. They're just in the truck bed. Different times, I guess. Another scene that I thought was like brilliant. What's interesting about this film is that there was no credited cinematographer. It was just like... The gaffers, you know, the best scene of camera work, if I were to painstakingly lay it out, it's during that concluding Swan Lake scene. And it's right at the moment when Nick slaps her, Uh, she's dancing on the couch and the camera goes out of focus on her. You, you actually yes. lose focus on Mabel when that happens. We cut back to Nick. He runs up and when he slaps her, they change the shutter speed, which is something that happens a few times in this film. And whenever a filmmaker changes the shutter speed, in my mind, it's usually a horror film, a mm-hmm. uh, zombie movie thing, right? When you want to see the zombies running really fast 28 Days does a lot. To see it in a family drama when you're seeing like a husband and a wife really going at it, right? I think that's like a brilliant decision it's like hyper reality it's not so much a higher frame rate but the fact that Mm -hmm. the shutter speed is faster the actions are so herky-jerky and it it feels more real while also being more surreal the film does that a few times and i think it's one of the better tricks that cassavetes has up his sleeves because I, i don't think that people are even pulling out of focus trick shots out there you know that's that's crazy who would think of that that's
0: also one of my favorite scenes, so especially visually added in my notes of like that scene where that happens. You can kind of, the way it kind of fuzzes up essentially is mm. mirrors where her mind is at. And when he slaps her, it brings her back in his sense, back to reality. And that's why we get to change. And mm. it's like, it's subtle enough. Um, you maybe might not notice it the first time, depending on how you're viewing the film. But like every time I see it, I'm just like, wow. I'm going to shift to the last portion of the show, which is a little lighter because this is a heavy movie. So we're going to get into something a little lighter. So the end credits. First question is uh, if someone comes up to you and they're like, hey, I have never seen a Cassavetti film, where should I start? Which film out of his filmography would you recommend they start with and why?
1: I think I would go with this movie. I think I would say A Woman Under the Influence. It's like the Rosetta Stone uh, to which you can understand the rest of Cassavetti's work through. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's not to say that the rest of his filmography is lesser it's just different right but the reason that this film is such a great place to start is because you see the best that it could be you see like when everything is firing on all cylinders this is how it turns out and again that's not to say that the other films are less successful they're just different uh Mm -hmm. you know maybe like i think shadows i would say you know it's a little rough around the edges at points Uh, same thing with faces as well. But you know, once you get to things like Killing of a Chinese Bookie and Opening Night, right, like they're all great films, but you kind of have to have a woman under the influence in the back of your mind while you're watching those movies. I think that the thing that will stick with you while you're watching this movie, it's to touch on the music again, actually a bit. And it's and we didn't touch on this before, but there's a woman who's singing on the song of all of the score, and I'm not sure if it's Roland's or not. But in my mind, I always thought it was. In my mind, I always kind of heard it as her voice. And we never see her sing in the movie. We always see her hum, right? And she Mm only sings on the soundtrack. That's what sticks in my mind when I think about this movie. I think about the struggling of a woman to get her voice out there. And she can't. And the film is within her mind. So we see everything that she wants to say, but we can't. No one else can hear it. It's a tragedy.
0: I definitely agree. It's not actually the first one I did watch. I think the first one I watched was Shadows. But I think if I were to recommend, I would start here because it gives you everything you need to know about Cassavetes' work. And then you can branch off from there. Because some of the other ones, depending on who you are, sometimes, like, I, as I said, I watched Shadows first and I was intrigued to watch. But that could also, Shadows or Faces, as you say, could push you off. Or Husbands, where you're like, uh, oh, yeah. this is aggressive. I don't know if I could watch this. So start off with something that is hard to watch, but it's gives you everything you need to know. If you don't like this movie, then not to say you won't like the other ones, but I don't know if maybe Casablanca is your your person, if this <laughs> is not the film for
1: you. <laughs> I think it's also important to say we've talked a lot about how heavy this movie is, but it's still really funny, right? Like we've, mm-hmm. we, we've touched about on how aggressive and downtrodden a lot of it is. But even on my first watch, I was cracking up a lot. And it's not because I was demeaning those characters. It's because if you're really tuned in, I think that you can really key into the absurdity inherent in every situation. It's it's a comedy of errors at a certain point. And
0: second question, last question, is a double bill question. And if you're pairing this film with another film to make a double bill what film or films would you pair it with
1: well this was a tough one because uh i i, I think i uh alluded to it before but the woman in peril a uh, subgenre of uh, films i think that this is almost like the definitive text of that subgenre yeah. and so much so that i wouldn't call it a woman in peril this is just a woman trapped you do like she there's there is no escape when the film starts and we just watch it uh, but anyways uh, the reason i bring that up is because the woman in peril films speak a lot about the filmmakers based on how they're handled. Mm -hmm. And I brought up Lars von Trier before. And if we're talking about films that are close one-to-ones, I would probably go with breaking the waves as the film to pair with a woman Mm -hmm. under the influence. However, I think that that film doesn't treat Emily Watson's character as uh, appropriately or with as much respect as Mm -hmm. a woman under the influence. So I kind of wanted to stay away from this movie, but the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, no, this is actually perfect. I should recommend this one. It's, Mm -hmm. it came out last year. It's resurrection. uh, Rebecca Hall. Okay uh have you seen that one before or no
0: no i haven't i do know it is tim roth also in that movie
1: yes and i don't want to spoil it for you i don't want to spoil it for you but i i I have to say i I guess this is to spoil the conceit of the right is the idea that we have this like really well put together woman who's a uh business like head right like she's running her own company and then when her abuser re-enters her life she starts to fall back into the mode that she was in when she was Mm -hmm. being abused. Right. Okay. And it's told under the guise of a horror film. Right. Mm -hmm. And with Rebecca Hall's recent string of performances, I believe she's in her early 40s. A lot of actresses, when they get to this age range, two things happen. A, They start to get less roles because of inherent sexism within the film industry, and there aren't many Mm -hmm. parts that are written for uh, women in that age bracket, but B, um, or two, whatever I said, I forget it was A, letters (laughs) or numbers. Uh, But anyways, uh, the second thing that happens is many actresses want to have their woman under the influence role and they yep. fight for it, right? Like, like I, I'm not going to run down on the examples of it, right? But I'm pretty sure you can think of an actress and they mm-hmm. have done their version of Gina Rollins in A Woman Under the Influence. And Rebecca Hall, she's done it a few times now. Uh, there was a 2016 film called Christine where she yep. plays a uh, news anchor that uh, kills herself on screen with Resurrection. This is a film where you watch somebody at the top fall to the bottom. And that's something we don't see in A Woman Under the Influence so I guess hats off to Rebecca Hall just showing that whole range. Mm-hmm. It's not as um, intellectually smart or thematically dense, but the last 30 minutes are harrowing. And okay. um, if you've ever been abused, if you've ever been in a, a situation where someone um, uses mental health against you, you know, mm-hmm. it is probably one of the most disturbing films I <laughs> put the screen I I remember yeah. I was like literally like gripping the seat I was like this is like it, it feels evil uh almost I say all of that because mental health is not something that is explored thoroughly on screen and mm-hmm. resurrection at least feels like one of the rare examples of a new release that actually manages to do something different with it uh okay and manages playing that's not 100 positive percent positive and not 100 mm-hmm. percent negative certainly would recommend meant for you and for your audience.
0: Yeah. It had been on my watch list because I like Rebecca Hall. I like uh and I like Tim Roth. I don't know. Maybe it was the way it was marketed as like this super sort of horror film that like I would have the way he described it, I would never known it was about that. So now I'm more interested in watching it. Uh I just thought it maybe it was gonna be too scary for me. I thought it was like some weird I don't know what I thought, but the trailer made it seem like it was more of like splashery than I I guess it is.
1: Oh, yeah. It's not a slash.
0: That's good. That's good to know.
1: So. Do you get scared easily, though?
0: So I like horror, but I don't usually watch. I don't watch any sort of modern anything like post the 80s because I hate jump scares. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I can't. I can't do the jump scares. And I find that modern horror films rely on it so heavily that I can't sit and watch it without being stressed the whole time. Like, I'm just stress waiting for it to happen Mm -hmm. so i just avoid them at all costs i like a thriller i like something that will disturb me but i don't want to be jumped out i'm more of like a disturbing (laughs) type of movie person than something that'll jump out and
1: scare me type of deal i i ask that because resurrection is so much more about the conversations that's where a lot of the fear comes from right and uh, tim roth is terrifying i don't think that Mm -hmm. i've seen him in a role like that before so yeah i I say all of that because um it's not jumpy um but you will probably be uh hearing tim roth say words that will Mm. uh make your skin crawl like there are things he says in that film that made me want to have a shower immediately so that should give you an idea but i want to ask what would you pair with a woman under the influence
0: so I'll kind of rapid fire the three that I have because they're sort of they're similar. There's just three different movies uh, going along the lengths of pairing other films about women who are going through either addiction or mental health issues or both, and the fact that we don't see that in the way it treats them that's sort of similar to the way it's treated in this film. So the first one was Wanda, Barbara Loden, 1970, which is about a woman who has her own family and just kind of leaves because she can't handle it and goes on an adventure of her own adventure of being the nicest way to put that she just goes out she needs to leave and the things that happened to her being just a woman on her own living that life starring also barbara loden who, who directed it so that's a great one another one was rachel rachel which uh paul newman directed about a woman who's, she's a school teacher, but you can see she's incredibly repressed and she's being pushed into these roles of what a woman's supposed to be, why is she not married, when is she going to have kids, and just to see the mental decay that happens to her because she cannot conform to the life that's expected of her and what happens to her there. So that's also great. One, and the last one is... um. Days of Wine and Roses, which is Blake Edwards, 1962. And I think that's his best one. That's um, Lee Remick and uh Jack Lemon. And Jack Lemon, they're a couple. He's an alcoholic. She wants to conform to him. She wants to, you know, relate to her husband. So she starts drinking with him. It overtakes her. And to the point where he becomes sober because he has to take care of her and just the dealing with her as a mother because they eventually have a kid who is an alcoholic and dealing with her eventual mental illness that was always there. It's surfaced up with everything that was happening to her. So those are the three that I would pair. If you want to see other films that tackle that subject that despite the fact that that's four movies about it, there's still not a lot compared to the times we see those stories as they revolve around men. Uh, so those are the ones it would be a heavy night. But they're all great at, and they're very much actors' movies. You know, these are the actors putting out their best performances. So those are the ones I'd recommend.
1: I have not seen any of these movies, and I have now uh, kept them in my search bar, and I will be watching them soon because they all sound amazing.
0: Oh, they're great. They're great. I feel like Wanda might be on Criterion Channel right now, but oh, I know it? Rachel. Rachel recently got released on Blu-ray. I think it was Warner Archives. I'm sure that's up on the internet somewhere. And then Days of Wine and Roses is common enough to find, I think. So I don't think that you would have any issues finding you or any listeners to find to watch them. I would highly recommend all of them. But... Mm-hmm. I think that was A Woman Under Influence. That was a great conversation. Like, I had a blast. It's it's great talking to someone who's so passionate about this film and is and so eloquent. I was like, wow, conversation? I could have just let you, you know, lead the way on this. You should have your own show. And I I hope that you want to come back for another show because there's so many things, I'm sure, that we have in common that we want to talk about. But thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Well, I, I really appreciate you having me, Felicia. I. Love shows that essentially view work within the context of a larger career, right? Um, mm-hmm. and I think that when it comes to looking at people's work, it's best to consider it in totality as well as yep. how it happened chronolog- or chronologically, I guess is how you'd phrase it. But I say that to say that I love that your show is taking a look at not just directors and cinematographers as well. And with Cassavetti specifically, um, he is like voice who is going away, and I think that we need to hold tight to him. I had a blast talking today, and I really enjoyed this. And if you'd like to have me back, just say the time, say the date. Just tell me the director or the cinematographer, and I'll be there.
0: We've got a plan there. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast at the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Moroni with intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at com or send us an email at seeingfacesandmovies at com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on The Killing of a Chinese Bookie.